Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. For the past three weeks, we've discussed making godly decisions, submitting our plans to the Lord, obeying Him with a willing heart, and realizing that sometimes God puts us into uncomfortable places that we don't want to be in, so that His overall greater purpose can be accomplished through us and for His glory. So if you miss any of those messages, you can go back on the podcast. You can look on your Apple or Android device. Just look for RCC Phoenix on your favorite podcast app, and you'll find us there. Or you can go to rccphoenix.com and listen to them directly off the website. But I encourage you to get those. Because we've talked a lot about how to make our decisions, our plans, submitting our thing to the Lord. And tonight I want to turn that attention away from what we're supposed to accomplish into what the title of this uh, series is going to be is I'm going to focus on what God wants. We talked a little bit about what my uh, a lot about what my desires is, my goal, my my dream, my vision, my purpose for 2020. You know, give me a word for 2020, God. And if you do that, that's fine. But I mean, like we do all that stuff, you know, like churchy people do. <clears throat> but um, there comes a time where we have to go. You know what? I've got all those plans. We submit those plans to the Lord. Do what you want. And so we have to know what he wants from us as Christ followers. And that's what we're going to talk a little bit about tonight. <clears throat> so this passage of scripture, we're going to read in Micah chapter 6. You have notes there in front of you. Before we get into um, reading the scripture, I'm just going to give you a quick little background and a little piece of history about uh, to get us caught up to where this, this uh, time and place in scripture really is. So the book of Micah is referred to as one of the minor Prophets. It's the first line on your notes there, minor prophets. Um, you'll, if you do any kind of Bible study, you'll understand that Isaiah um, is referred to as kind of a, a major prophet, and that um, these guys like Micah and Haggai and Habakkuk, they're minor prophets. It's not like baseball, all right? It's not like the major leagues and the minor leagues. Like, these guys who are major prophets have, you know, the real insight, and the minor prophets just kind of learning and working up to their level. It literally, I, when I... When I found this out, it astounded me. The minor prophets mean that their books are just shorter than the other ones. That's all it is. It's about length of the of the books that they of their words from God. So, minor prophet doesn't diminish him at all. It just means that his book isn't nearly as long as Isaiah's. You know, there's a less than a dozen chapters in Micah and sixty something in Isaiah. That's all that means. <clears throat> but the book of Micah is is named after its author, whose full name is Micaiah, meaning. Uh, who is like Yahweh? It's the next line of your notes, and I'll spell that for you. Y-A-H-W-E-H. And that's very important during this time frame that it's, his name doesn't mean who is like God because just like today, there are a whole bunch of gods. He's making it very specific that it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Hebrew God, the God of, that created everything, the all-powerful God who sent his son Jesus. That God is what we're talking about when we refer, refer to Yahweh. The book was written about 700 years before Christ, and Micah lived at the same time as Isaiah and Hosea. And during this time, Israel had yet again disobeyed, it's the next line of your notes, had yet again disobeyed the Lord and turned away from him to pursue their own desires. This has been a theme throughout Scripture. If you read the Old Testament, the people of God come close to him, their affections get turned away from him to other things. 
he corrects them, they come back, uh, they're, they're with him for a while, they get turned back towards the, thing of the things of the world, they leave him, and there's kind of this ebb and flow going on of running to God and then running from him. And this is one of those points where they disobeyed him and ran from him. They compromised many of the moral guidelines that God had given them, and they also adopted, next line in your notes, many pagan customs, pagan, P-A-G-A-N, pagan customs from the surrounding nations. Um, one of the ways they did this was they intermarried with the people from other cultures and other nations around them. Now, this is not because God was some kind of, you know, nationalistic bigot, don't go marrying other people from other nationalities. They worshipped other gods, and he did not want them to bring those foreign gods and foreign concepts into um, the land of Israel and corrupt his children. So he's saying, stay away from all those gods. They disobey him. Israel disobeys him. Goes over to these um, to these other nations and begins to intermarry with some of their people. And lo and behold, what happens? Exactly what God says. They start bringing in these pagan customs, and Israel begins to worship idols that are not Yahweh. They're not God. They begin to do erect monuments and build the false idols. They build these poles. They build these idols of stone and clay. They build all these kinds of idols and have all these rituals that are going on. And uh, they find themselves in direct rebellion. The next line of your notes, Israel is in their rebellion, has developed an attitude of entitlement against the Lord, even though they, were, they are the ones who have repeatedly sinned against God. Anybody ever known anybody who was rebellious? Everybody ever been the person who was rebellious? Yeah, yeah, you're looking at him right here. Um, typically, when you deal with somebody in rebellion, or if you're in rebellion, what happens? You state your case, but kind of twist it to where you don't look so bad, right? And this is what Israel has done, and God is obviously unhappy. He's obviously unhappy with all of this, and so he's about to tell them uh, what their punishment is and bring them back to the sobering reality he's unhappy, Okay. That's the backstory of what we're about to read. Okay, so Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Listen to what the Lord is saying. This is Micah, the prophet of God, speaking to the children of Israel. Listen to what the Lord is saying. Stand up and state your case against, against me. Let the mountains and hills be called to witness your complaints. And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has a case against his people. He will bring charges against Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me. For I have brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember, my people, how King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed and how Balaam, son of Baor, blessed you instead? And remember your journey from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal when I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness? What can we bring to the Lord? This is the people of Israel talking back to, to Micah saying, what can we do to make it right? What can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings? Should we bow before God most high with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? No. Or should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? This is God's response to his children. No, O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you. To do what is right, to love mercy, 
and walk humbly with your God. So there's a lot going on here. Okay, next line in your notes. The people of Israel tried to buy their forgiveness with physical sacrifices. They tried to buy their forgiveness with physical sacrifices. The only problem is, next line in your notes, offerings of this magnitude were never required by the Lord. Sacrifices were required. Sometimes they would use oil, but they'd never use more than a few pints. It would take a ram, not thousands of rams. A little bit of oil, not 10,000 rivers. And so, the reason they were offering these big, huge, extravagant things is because the false gods they were worshiping demanded those things. <coughs> They're worshiping all these false gods, and they have to make all these crazy sacrifices. Some of you will remember the story of Elijah, where he calls down fire from heaven, and the, and the Baal worshipers are over here, they're dancing around, and they're cutting themselves, and hours on end, they lay on the ground, and they scream and holler and all that, right? <clears throat> and it's my favorite story where he mocks them, where's your God, you know, like, is he in the bathroom? That's my favorite line, one of my favorite lines in the Bible, it's awesome. And um, so they do all these crazy ritualistic sacrific uh, sacrificial things, Okay. So the people, next on your notes, thought they had to offer massive sacrifices to appease the anger of their false gods. To appease the anger of their false gods. So notice what is happening here, okay? Very important. Israel is attempting to appease the almighty God, Yahweh, with the requirements of pagan gods. Ooh. They're trying to get some holy response of forgiveness from God by doing fleshly, selfish things. I'm just let that sit there with you for a second. Then, Israel shows just how far they have fallen away from the Lord by offering their firstborn children, next on your notes, firstborn children, as sacrifices. <clears throat> Let's see if I can get this bad boy to work real quick. I want to show you a picture of something. There we go. The pagan god that required sacrifice. pagan god that required sacrifice was the Canaanite god Molech. M-O-L-E-C-H. I think that's one of your notes in there. But this is an artist's rendering of the god, pagan god Molech. Okay? I want you to notice something right here. This entire thing is made out of metal. Brass, iron, whatever they use to make it. They made it out of some type of metal. And right here, this is a fire that's built underneath the idol, okay? The idol's hands are like this. And they would heat the idol up so hot when they were ready to sacrifice the children, they would place a child in the arms of Moloch and it was so hot it would burn to death. 
the Canaanites practiced this for more than 400 years. God sent prophets and people to tell them to cut it out. They refused to, and God wiped them off the face of the earth because of their disobedience. They would often, they, most of the time, they would take the false priests of this false god who go outside the city and while they were sacrificing the child, they had musicians beat on these huge, large drums to try to drown out the screaming of the children. It was a crazy, <coughs> sick, disgusting, evil, bloodthirsty sacrifice to a god who, according to their legend, didn't want his children to become ruler after him, so he ate them. That's who they fashioned this God out of. Here's interesting bit of information for you. This is another idol of Moloch, a rendering of Moloch, that is currently on display in Rome. Outside of the Colosseum, with the Vatican's permission, that was put there in September of 2019 and will stay there until March of 2020. It is there today. In front of the Colosseum where Christians, men, women, and children were killed for sport because of their belief in Christ. The tourists have gone there and are appalled to see this thing standing out in the front entrance. They didn't put it off to the side it's by the only entrance so that everyone has to walk by and see the horrendous idol of Moloch. Idolatry is very much alive, unfortunately, in today's day and age. Israel offers to do that as penance to God. Israel offers to sacrifice their own children to try to make their own <coughs> guilt right with God. The fallen and hardened hearts, the next line of your notes, of God's children his chosen people are on full display. When I was reading this, I thought, man, is this really kind of like hyperbole? Like, is it kind of like a metaphor? Like, we'll do anything, and I just kind of came up with these things, but if you'll read back through the Old Testament and history, you'll find that the children of Israel did in fact practice child sacrifice in the times when they were drifting away from the Lord. When they ask Micah, the prophet of God, should we do this? His first response is no. You already know what the Lord requires of you. Today we're only going to go over the first one of those things. This next line of your notes. It's do what is right. Do what is right. <coughs> So what I want to address in our next few minutes here together is this. How can we know right and wrong? How can you really know 
right and wrong. The word right used here in the scripture where Micah says do right, the original Hebrew word is misfat. It's there in your notes. You don't have to write it down. But it means this, fairness, morally correct behavior or thinking, and righteousness. So what God is telling his people to do is act fair, act morally correct in your behavior and thinking, and act righteous. His righteous, not ours. His view of righteousness, righteousness have his view, not ours. So here's what I want to do. I want to take a, I want to, I want to take a quick look at three different areas of right and wrong. Okay? The first one is this. The world's idea of right and wrong. When I say world, I mean people who are not Christ followers, not Christians, not believers in Christ. They don't follow him. They don't submit their life to him. They're just doing whatever they want with, with their life and just going through life, just doing whatever pleases them. That's what I mean by the world's idea of right and wrong. When you talk about right and wrong, this has become a very public question. A lot of people asking this question. A lot of people having debates and putting out their opinions and thoughts about what's right or right and wrong. And when you start listening to people who take platforms to say, this is what I believe, they're typically atheists, I don't believe in God, or agnostic. I don't know if there's a God in kind of not really caring, kind of indifferent. Atheist, I don't believe in God at all. Agnostic, I don't know if he's out there, I'm not really concerned about it. You'll find more and more people begin to present these ideas. There's not really a God. We were all made, uh, it's all an accident. Next line in your notes, modern intellectual atheists continue to make the argument that human beings exist as a matter of cosmic chance. Cosmic chance. And we're all just walking, quote, I quote one of them, blobs of goo, that's, that's a good one, unquote, that exist by sheer accident in the universe. You know, a lot of this comes from the... the um, Theory of evolution. His name escapes me. Somebody help me with his name. What's his name? Darwin. Darwin. There you go. Darwin's theory of evolution. And what I'm happy to report to you is that even in the atheistic and agnostic scientific community, they're beginning to stand up and say, "There's actually no way this can be right." <coughs> Conference happened last year. They had more people and more guest speakers oppose this idea that we just sprung up out of nowhere. Atheists and agnostics challenging that, not Christians. Atheists and agnostics. But let's be very clear. The beginning of the study of science, moral accountability, and the arts all have roots in Scripture. Let me give you an example. Next on your notes, Matthew Morey. It's a good name for a dude, Matthew if you don't get that joke, your wife will explain to you on the way home. Matthew <laughs> Mori, last name M-A-U-R-Y, devoted himself to studying the winds, clouds, weather, and ocean features, as well as the Bible. He lived in the 1800s. In his Bible studies, the words of Psalm 8 stuck in his mind. Whatsoever <laughs> passes through the paths of the sea, 
Murray determined that if God's word said there were paths in the sea, there must be paths we set out to find them. And he is the person who charted the ocean currents that our U.S. Navy still uses to this day. Because of a scripture he read, actually his daughter read it to him when he was sick, and it stuck with him, and he said, if I ever get out of this sick bed, I'm going to go find these paths, and he did. The U.S. Navy wrote an article in 1929 commending him and built a actual monument to him with a Bible sitting next to him. And these two scripture verses inside, uh, next to him, because he used scripture to find these ocean currents. Just one of many. But the idea that we're here by accident um, is a problem. Now you might be going, well, we're talking about what, right and wrong. How does this whole thing of people not believing in God created everything, how in the world does this pertain to it? Because let's follow the chain. If there is no God, there's no moral standard for you to live by, and then there's no right and wrong. And if there is no right or wrong, then who's to tell you that you're wrong to do anything? This is surfacing very gently in words like this. Um, you have your truth, and I have my truth. They have their truth, we have our truth. But when truth becomes only what we think it is, everything falls apart. There is no your truth, my friend. There is no my truth. There's the truth, and we have to submit to it. And it's God. Next line of your notes, most modern atheists believe right and wrong are only decided by collective society. That an accident. In short, there is no moral standard because society and morals are always changing. So if there's no God, there's no purpose, we're all just mounds of goo or dirt that are going to die, and there's nothing we do matters, and it's all chance, and there's no afterlife, there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's none of that, then I just do whatever I want to do to make myself happy, and there's no right or wrong, then I can't tell you you did something wrong, you can't tell me we did something wrong, and everybody's good, right? No. Because under that mindset, both Hitler and Mother Teresa are on equal significance. Because they just did what they thought was right, right? And everybody in this room knows the difference between those two. They know the moral difference between one was evil, pure, wrong, and the other was right in trying to help the downtrodden, the homeless, the brokenhearted. <coughs> this whole idea of you get to pick what you believe, and I get to pick what I believe, what is right, and we just leave everybody alone is called, the next line of your notes, subjective moral reasoning. <clears throat> means I just get to pick whatever I think is right. It's a widespread issue today. But we must as people have a standard of right and wrong that is outside of us. It has to be above us. It has to be something we all recognize to submit to if we don't, everybody does their own thing, and who can say that it's wrong?
There's a uh, famous atheist named Richard Dawkins. He wrote a book called The God Delusion. And he basically, in The God Delusion, outlines that any people of faith who believe in God just delusion. And he proposes the idea that we as a species have evolved so great that we don't require the need for God anymore or religion at all. We've we used that when we were a lower grade of species, but now we're a higher grade of species and we don't need it. We don't need it. I think it's very funny that um, an agnostic, remember atheist is a guy who says there is no God, agnostic says kind of indifferent, I don't know. But an agnostic Jew wrote a book back to him called The Devil's Delusion. Not the God's Delusion, but The Devil's Delusion. And let's see if what he says makes sense. His name is David Berlinski and his quotes there and you know you can read along with him. Has anyone provided proof of God's in existence? Not even close. Has quantum cosmology explained the emergence of the universe or why it's here? Not even close. Have our sciences explained why our universe seems to be fine-tuned to allow for the existence of life? Not even close. Are, are physicists and biologists willing to believe in anything so long as it's not religious thought? Close enough. Has rationalism and moral thought provided us with an understanding of what is good, what is right, and what is moral? Not close enough. Has secularism in the terrible 20th century been a force for good? Not even close to being close. Is there a narrow and oppressive orthodoxy in the science? Close enough. Does anything in the science or their philosophy justify the claim that religious belief is irrational? not even in the ballpark. Is scientific atheism a frivolous exercise in intellectual contempt? Dead on. When I read this, I got all like, yeah! Take that, sucker! This is an agnostic dude fighting with an atheist guy about God, and we believers don't have to say nothing. Take that, sucker! And then... Uh, this little bit of conviction started to descend upon me and grow a little bit bigger and bigger. Because in this argument, this public argument of there's no right or wrong or what the world thinks is right or wrong, there's very anger. There's a lot, a lot of anger, very, uh, a, a very high amount of animosity. There's this name calling and this I got you and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to give you like verbal jujitsu or something and like slam you with my words and make you look stupid and all this kind of stuff and then I found somebody who did it back to him and I was like yeah and I went but Micah's response to us was not to act like they act or be happy that fool got served no It says I'm supposed to look at that man who is far from God and go, he's got a story of hurt that led him to a position of hatred. And my own conviction was, I can look at these guys and be like, man, you use all the big words that I can't even spell right. Like, I'd spell check half of this stuff that I wrote down on your notes. Like, I'm, I'm sure some of it's still wrong. But am I supposed to look at those guys and treat them the way they treat me? No. 
I'm supposed to do what is right. And just because the world operates in one way does not mean I am supposed to react that way. I am supposed to react how my Father in Heaven has directed me to act because I am submitted to Him and I want that man to find his Savior. Before we get happy when somebody gets there, physically, intellectually, on some social media platform, did our heart break that somebody is running full-fledged in the opposite direction of a loving father. What broke my heart was when I found the 90%, 90, 90% of all the famous atheists when they were interviewed have zero relationship with their father. No wonder they look at a heavenly father with contempt because they don't have a relationship with earth. And all of that anger and animosity I felt when I would read and listen to people mock Christ and Christianity changed to a position of heartbreak when I went, no matter what he says, he's just a guy that doesn't know Christ. I can't operate the world the way the world operates. B. Just look at how the world views right and wrong. Let's look what Jesus says about right and wrong. Matthew 22, 34 and 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him, Jesus, with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second commandment is equally as important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Another version of that says all the laws of the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love God with everything you've got and love people the same way you love yourself. That, in a nutshell, is how believers in Christ are supposed to act. That is our knowledge of right and wrong. When we do those things, we are right that fall under that umbrella, and when we do things that are opposite, we are wrong. Very clear, right and wrong. You see the difference between the world's view? It's kind of convoluted, and you got to kind of force something and this intellectual gymnastics to kind of make things mean things that don't really mean. And then you look at Christ and he's like, love God with everything you got and love people as yourself. Pretty clear. There is clarity in following and serving Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. There is clarity in following and serving Jesus Christ. Just a question I wrote on your notes I want you to kind of contemplate maybe sometime on your own later. What would the world look like if love truly was the highest standard for every human being? I'm not talking about the feeling of love because you realize that's not love, right? That's an emotion brought on about love. I'm talking about true. I am committed to you 
and giving you everything that I possibly can, love you enough to hand you the gospel and lead you to Christ. I'm talking about real, grind it out, day-to-day, not sexy. I'm going to get in and do the work love. That makes marriages work, relationships with children work, parents work, friends work. That love never. Lastly, <clears throat> talk about what the world says about right and wrong, what Jesus said about right and wrong, and the Word of God consistently outlines, outlines what's right and wrong. Let's go back to that story in Micah real quick. The nation of Israel had Scripture. All the books, the, the five, first five books of the Old Testament called the Torah, they had those. They had the historical writings of the previous kings, Saul, David, Solomon, had all of those. They had literal, actual prophets of God living among them. Micah, he'd walk in the room and say something God told him to say. It's right there. The word of God was coming through a living person right there, walking among them. There were several of them. They had all of that. Next sign in your notes. Ready for this? Israel had the word of God. The law of God. And the prophets of God. Speaking God's message to them directly. They had exact knowledge of what was right and wrong. In the Lord's sight. But they spent more time focused. Pleasing their own selfish desires than submitting and following what the Lord had taught them about right and wrong. Their hearts and consciences had become calloused. And this is what happens when people continue to live in a sinful condition. Their hearts and their conscience become calloused. We are watching this in slow motion happen in our culture. The more people move away from God, move away from Christ, move away from his teachings, we watch the callousness of what's right and wrong, things that used to be shameful or taboo or would bring uh, some kind of embarrassment are no longer bringing that kind of embarrassment because the longer we spend away from God, the more calloused, the more desensitized to what his word says we become. The first thing Michael says to the people of Israel is do what's right. Do what's right. Seems like a pretty given thing, right? Do what's right. But it's the first thing he reminds his children, the first thing God reminds his children of when they waver and try to return. Stop what you're doing. Stop with the sacrifice. Stop with all this stuff and do what I've already told you is right. Those are things that we as believers need to remember as well. Let's read Psalms 119 real quick. Verses 1, not the whole thing. It's a long chapter in Bible. Just verse 1 through 11. Listen to what it says about people who follow right or wrong for the Lord. Listen to what it says. Joyful are people of integrity 
who follow the instructions of the Lord. That is true. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil, and they walk only in his paths. You have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with other people. No, no, no. When I compare my life to your commands. As I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. I will obey your decrees. Please don't give up on me. How can a young person stay pure by obeying your word? I have tried hard to find you. Don't let me wander from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Micah's encouragement to the, his word from God to the children of Israel was not know what is right. It was do what is right. But the next line you know to this. Before we can do what is right, we must know right and wrong. How do we know God created everything in us? How do we know? How do we know that's true? Anybody? It's in your Bible. The longer we go, science points back to validate things that are in the Bible. How do we know what Jesus said to us and to his disciples about right and wrong? How do we know? It's in the Bible. How do we know the character of God and how he dealt with the people of Israel when they wandered off and came back? How do we know what God has lined out is right and wrong? How do we know what that is? How do we know what those stories are? It's in the Bible. To truly know what is right and wrong, we must have deep roots in Scripture. That next line on your notes, next to last one. To know what is right and wrong, we must have deep roots in Scripture. It cannot be the book that's dusty on the shelf that we pick up when we come to service. It has to be something that we are constantly probing, constantly reading, constantly consuming, doing what Psalm 119, the end of 119 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I need to know what's right and wrong, and the only way to know what's right and wrong is to get in his word, consume his word, pray, spend time with him, do the things that are not sexy, not the big shot in the big game, but the working out in the gym in the middle of the night when no one's there. That is the kind of work that needs to be done for our roots to grow so we know what is right and wrong, so we know which way to do things, so we know which answer to give when, the, when the, that question comes of should I do this or should I not. We have to be in his word. We have to be. It's not optional because we're not going to stand before him one day and be like, I didn't know that I was supposed to do that. He says, I've given you my word. We have to have deep roots in Scripture. We 
We are to make sure as believers in Christ that we not only stand for what's right and say it out there, but also treat people right when they hold opposite viewpoints of us. I can change the end of that to almost anything. Treat people right when they mock you for your belief. Treat people right when they condescend you for believing that God actually made you. Treating people right when you treated them right and they treated you wrong. And you have that decision, am I going to go back at them? Am I going to set this straight? Or am I going to act how the scripture says I should act? Why? Last line. When we do what is right, we are doing what God wants. The danger in preaching a message like this today is twofold. Number one, it's kind of heady. It's a little bit more heady than something we normally would do. A lot of notes, a lot of writing down some things, picking apart, picking apart. That's a little bit dangerous. But the more dangerous thing is this. When you have the truth handed to you, you are now responsible to implement what you know. I can, as a teacher, as a pastor, as someone who's trying to rightly divide the word of truth and try to bring good food for people to eat from a spiritual perspective, I can do everything I possibly can to give you the non-processed organic food, <clears throat> the grass-fed beef. That even is a real thing. I know I saw it on a meat pack once. <clears throat> trying to bring you the best stuff free of the preservatives, free of debris that we possibly can. <clears throat> but I cannot make you put it into practice. And when you stand before God, when I stand before God, I'm going to have to give account between what I knew and what I did. Micah didn't say, know what is right. He said, do what is right. And now that we know what is right to do, it is on us, individual personal responsibility, to enact that, put it into practice, and follow what Micah says. The first thing is, do Not complex at all. Not confusing at all. Do the right thing. Do right. But difficult. Can be very difficult. Let me put you in a hypothetical scenario real quick and then we'll wrap it up. <laughs> you got a business deal. You can fudge a couple numbers and make a whole bunch of extra money. just a couple numbers, but it's a lot more money. And your first thought is, I know this ain't really right, but I can give more money to the church. 
you may have a portion of your heart that's not submitted to Christ. If you're like, hey man, it's tax time. I'm going to get real close to home, right? Everybody got to do that. It's tax time. And if I just say that I did this and have these expenses, I can save all this money because taxation is theft anyway, right? Yeah. If I just not don't be completely honest, I can go fill in the blank. Some good thing you think the Lord wants to do. If you have that mentality, it's eerily similar to the children of Israel who tried to satisfy a holy God with fleshly means. There may be a portion of your heart that you got a blind spot that you may need to submit to Him. And if you do, guess what? So have I. No superheroes in the room. Everybody's got something they can submit to God truly. Truly submit to Him. Because when we do right, we do what God wants.